We're reading God's Holy Word this evening from the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll begin our reading in chapter 12, verse 27, and we'll read through the end of chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, through to the end of the next chapter, chapter 13. you're familiar with chapter 12, it's the great chapter on the body and the different gifts that there are in the body, and you catch that as we finish reading this chapter. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27, Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular, and God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, have all the gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? And the obvious answer to all those questions is no. And then verse 31, but covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet I show unto you a more excellent way. And that's the way of love. Chapter 13. Though I speak with tongues, the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long, and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. The text is the first three verses, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1, 2, and 3. 
boys and girls, you should know that the word charity here is the word for love, the old English word for love. And I'll read these verses that way. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. We have in the chapter before us beloved transcendent poetry, perhaps some of the most memorable words written in the Bible, at least in the New Testament. Beautiful poetry. And there's something very powerful about the description of love that's given here. We recognize its power. We use these words at weddings. We put them in cards. We hang them on the walls in our house. But even though it's so strong and powerful as poetry, we must understand tonight as we come to this chapter that it's not written in Scripture as a sentimental description of this beautiful thing called love. Rather, this chapter is a rebuke. It's a rebuke that comes to the church at Corinth in which the apostle holds up before them love because they are not loving. That's clear in the context, both in chapter 12, which precedes this beautiful chapter, and chapter 14 that follows it. The apostle is dealing with problems in Corinth having to do with gifts. Those gifts were laid out for us in verse 28 of the previous chapter. Apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. These are all gifts that were present in the church at Corinth. These are gifts that belong in the body, and all the members, each having their own gift, are part of that body. That's also what the apostle has taught them in chapter 12. Those gifts should be a reason for, or should be used for, unity. They should be used in such a way that they express the unity of the body. But in Corinth, these gifts came a point, became a point of division. The focus in Corinth was on especially the external, the obvious gifts. And there were two gifts, and the apostle ranks the gifts and puts these at the very bottom of those rankings. These are the least important of the gifts. But there were two particular gifts in Corinth that people wanted and clamored for. And if they had them, they wanted to, to put them on display for everyone else to see. And that's chapter 14, the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. These were elevated and abused in the church at Corinth in such a way that they became a point of division. And now in that context, Paul speaks to them about love. And he presents love as the more excellent way. That is, it's more important. It's much better than any gift. 
And the emphasis in the chapter falls not on the love of Christ for us, nor on a biblical definition of love. You don't really find a definition of love in this chapter. Nor is it a description of our love for God or His love for us, but it focuses on the love that should exist in the church between believers. Your love for one another. And the apostle is saying to them, in Corinth, you're not doing this. And he confronts them, as it were, as the word of God comes to them here and lays before them the importance and the behavior of love. He's telling them everything that they are not. So, for example, in verse 4, charity suffers long, or it's patient. They weren't patient. Charity is kind. They were not kind. Charity envies not. They were envious. Charity vaunts not itself. They were filled with pride. They were puffed up against one another, and so on. And the word comes to confront, and we need to be confronted as well by this word. We can be very busy with the work of the kingdom and put a lot of emphasis on other things in this work and in the church, and love loses its primary place in the life of the body. The love that the apostle speaks of here is a love of attitude and behaviors. The word for love here is the word agape, translated charity, but it could just as well be and is most often translated as love in the New Testament. Agape love is a love not based on feelings, but it's a love that arises from the will. So when we don't feel like loving, we are called to love. And of course, you understand that when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies, do good to them that hurt you. And that is behaving in a loving way when we don't feel like it, against our feelings. Love is not about feeling. And love then is something in which I choose to sacrifice myself. It comes at great expense to me because I'm committed to the one whom I love. And of course, the supreme display of such love is the love of the Savior for us, which we celebrated this morning in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So let's consider the first verses of this chapter under the theme, the priority of love. Notice with me first the illustrations that the apostle uses. He uses three illustrations to emphasize the importance, the priority of love. Then notice the reasons that love takes priority. And then third, the application of that to us. In the first three verses of this chapter, the apostle emphasizes the importance of love, that love should take precedence and preeminence over everything and anything else in the life of the church in the life of the Christian. You may be a Christian with many gifts or few gifts, with a prominent role in the church, or what 1 Corinthians 12 calls a lesser member, but still essential and most important really in the body, because 1 Corinthians 12 makes that point. You may be prominent, a lesser member, and none of that really matters, because what matters above all is love. You can have any position in the church, But you must have, in that position, love. That's essential for every member. Or we could put this another way. Far more important than a position of prominence or recognition in the church, far more important than obvious gifts 
in the church and the development of those gifts in the church are the gifts of love and everything that flows from it. The fruit of the Spirit, we could say, is more important than the gifts that the Spirit gives in the church. And the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5 begins with this. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the important thing. But in Corinth, that was reversed. All the emphasis was on the giftedness of prophecy and speaking in tongues and miracle and roles of teaching. And meanwhile, the fruits of the Spirit were completely ignored and overlooked. And in this chapter, the Apostle calls them back to the more important thing, the more excellent way of love. That's not to say that gifts are unnecessary, that gifts are unimportant in the church, that gifts have no place in the church. In fact, he tells them to covet earnestly the best gifts. And he's not yet talking there about love. He's talking about that in the context of verse 28, where he has ranked the gifts. And the most important gifts are not the gifts of miracles and speaking in tongues, but the most important gifts are first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and after that, miracles, gifts of healing, and so on. So the teaching gifts are the important gifts in the church. And those gifts are necessary in the church. But for any gift to be useful in the church, it must be mingled with love. That's the essential component for usefulness in the church. That is the more excellent way. And so the the apostle's primary message is that all by themselves, giftedness or gifts in the church are of no value at all without love. Some examples. You may teach your children, you may discipline your children, but if you don't love your children, that's of no value. You may be committed to the biblical teaching of lifelong marriage, but without love, that commitment is unprofitable. We may preach the gospel with biblical precision, but without love, it's like shouting into the wind. I may live a righteous life before the world and speak biblical truth, but without love, my testimony is empty. We may gather to worship with like-minded Reformed believers who confess and know the Reformed faith and the doctrines of grace, but if love is absent, it's a waste of time. That's what the Apostle is saying here. If we look at the passage, the first three verses here, we see that we don't need to come up with our own applications or illustrations because the Apostle gives us five of them in these verses. And they all are to bring home the importance, the centrality, the necessity, the primacy, the priority of love. The first illustration, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or tinkling cymbal. When it says, though, that's a conditional phrase. It could be translated this way. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and do not have, or even better, we could just add this word at the beginning of the sentence, even, even though. I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity. I am become a sounding brass or tinkling cymbal. Tongues of men. 
He's talking here about the gift of tongues in the church, in the apostolic age, the ability to speak fluently in foreign languages without ever having heard or learned those languages before. And this was obviously a supernatural gift. If you've spent any time trying to learn a foreign language, you understand that this gift was an amazing gift. That people in the church were able to speak in other languages than their own without ever learning those languages. It wasn't a gift that was given to all new believers. Do all speak in tongues? The answer to that question is no. And Paul mentions it here because, as we've already seen, this was what Corinth put all the emphasis on, speaking in tongues. But now he says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, he adds something to it. And he does this for the sake of emphasis. We don't even need to take this literally. If we look through the Bible, there is no language that angels have that we're aware of. But instead, the apostle here is using hyperbole to, to emphasize a point. He says, I may be able to speak with other languages, and I might even be able to speak in the language of the angels of heaven. And he does that, I say, for, for emphasis. Wouldn't that be amazing? To be able to speak with angels. But without love, and that's his point, all my talk would be as a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. These are instruments that play just a single note with a clang. They may fit in an orchestral piece occasionally, but all by themselves, these are obnoxious sounds. Irritating. And the apostle is saying, that's without love, that's all the gift of tongues is. And that was true in Corinth. They were concerned for themselves. They were concerned for their position, their prominence in the church, so that Paul has to say in the next chapter, chapter 14, if you're going to use the gift of tongues, don't use it in the public worship of the church. It's not suitable for that. Go home and talk in tongues. Because all you're trying to do is elevate yourself. There's no love in it. It's pointless. It's wasted. And what the Apostle says here about tongues, of course, applies to every kind of speech that there may be in the church. A minister may be gifted in language. He may preach with eloquence and with clarity and with truth even, but without love, what he says is of no profit. A man may be able to correctly articulate very fine details of doctrine and theology. You may be good at presenting truth to others, to unbelievers or those who question the faith, good at apologetics, but without love, that's unprofitable. It's empty. An elder may bring appropriate exhortations to an erring and a sinning member in the church, but without love, his words are like a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. The second illustration, verse 2, though I have the gift, and we could again say, even though, 
And even though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And the apostle puts three gifts together here. Prophecy, understanding, and knowledge. Understanding is wisdom. Knowledge is is really the accumulation of facts. But prophecy here is the prominent gift. Again, this is the one that received all the emphasis in the church at Corinth. There are two aspects to the gift of prophecy. It was part of the apostolic age again. And the one who had the gift of prophecy first received personal revelations from God. And then they spoke those in such a way that they were able to explain the mind and the will of God to the people. It was a gift that we find in the apostolic age. It was a very useful gift, both because the scripture had not yet been completed and also because it was useful in the church to edify others, to build them up. I may have the gift of prophecy, and he says I may understand all mysteries and have all knowledge. Understanding, wisdom, knowledge. Mysteries are are things that we cannot know apart from divine revelation. So the Bible speaks of the mystery of the gospel, which was hidden and then revealed after Pentecost, when the gospel would now go to the Gentiles. Or Or the Bible speaks of the mystery of marriage, and the mystery of marriage is what's shown to us in Scripture about Christ and His bride, the church, is the secret of marriage, and we wouldn't know it apart from God revealing it. And this is saying you may understand all mysteries. And notice again the hyperbole, the emphasis, all mysteries and all knowledge. No one has an understanding of all mysteries. Nobody has all knowledge. But the apostle is saying, for the sake of argument, imagine that somebody does, that there was someone like this. Without love, those gifts are nothing. The first of these three gifts mentioned here, prophecy, we no longer have, but we still have in the church the gifts of wisdom and knowledge, so that a person with these gifts would be somebody with outstanding understanding of the Scripture and doctrine and would be able with wisdom to apply those things to not just lives, our, our lives, but to current events and to history so that these things can be understood from a, a biblical perspective, a biblical worldview for the individual and for the church. Understanding mysteries and knowledge. Or perhaps this is you. You have been sitting under reform preaching for decades. You've read good theologians. You're able to call to mind things that you've read and learned. You're able to contribute in discussions about doctrine and in Bible studies. Perhaps you're considered even a wise person and people consult with you. But all of this, the Apostle's saying, is nothing without love. Even though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and have not charity, I am nothing. 
The third illustration, though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains. And again, you see hyperbole. He exaggerates for the sake of emphasis. Removing mountains here is figurative. He's not talking about having a faith in which you're able to rearrange landscape, but he's using the same figure that Jesus uses in Matthew 17 and Matthew 21 to speak of the kind of faith that believes that with God, nothing is impossible. And so he's not talking here about uh, someone who, who has a false faith, something like the Pentecostals preach today, the name it and claim it faith or healing faith. But he's talking about someone here who, through the most difficult trials of life, is able quietly and contentedly to trust in the will of God. Someone like Job, who in one day lost ten children, and at the end of it declared, The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Strong faith, mountain-moving faith. A person may have such a faith so that people marvel at what they're able to endure. But without love, I am nothing. The fourth illustration, verse 3, Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. This is an extreme act of generosity. Again, he's using hyperbole. He's exaggerating. He's not describing here the philanthropy of the extremely rich in society, but he's describing here someone who's religious, someone in the church who, as a religious activity, gives to care for the needy. Here's a man who has given away all his possessions. I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. He's given away all his possessions in order to provide for the needy. And now this one who is very wealthy lives a very modest life. He could be traveling the world. He could be living in a mansion. He could have a yacht on the lake. But instead, in order to help others and to lift them from their poverty, he's given all this away. We look at that and we say, surely that has to be love. Who would do this? Paul says that this can be done without love. It may be something that's done for the praise of men. You think of Ananias and Sapphira. It was done for their own ego and for the praise of men. They said, we've sold our land and here's the money for it. And they kept back part of it. But they wanted the praise that Barnabas had received. I may do it even as a religious exercise to merit with God or to ease my conscience. When it's done without love, such generosity, he says, is of no profit. It profits me nothing. One more illustration. Again in verse 3. Even though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. This describes someone so committed to the cause of Christianity that she allows herself to be slowly burned to death 
by her persecutors. Surely this is commendable. She not only gives up her goods for the sake of others, but she gives up her life. She allows her body to be burned. And now we say Paul has become extreme. He's speaking during a time of persecution of the church. Corinth may have known some who had died, or perhaps some of them would be called on to give their lives for their Christian faith. And the apostle says, you may give your body to be burned. You may die a martyr's death. And without love, it's nothing. It doesn't mean anything. It's empty. He's saying you can die a martyr's death as a hypocrite. And the test of it is love. And now let let me remind you again of the kind of love that he's speaking of. He's speaking here of love for one another in the church. He's speaking here of the behaviors and the attitudes of love that are described in the following verses as patient and kind and without envy and without pride and seeking not its own things, not easily provoked, thinking no evil of others, rejoicing in the truth about others, bearing, being patient with others, believing, that is, believing the best about others, hoping, that is, believing that the best is possible with others. Without love, even martyrdom, he says, is... Nothing. This is essential. This is the first work of the Spirit. This is the first fruit of the Spirit in the life of the child of God. Not gifts, but love. Otherwise, you're nothing. Why? Why is everything, nothing, without love? Why is love so indispensable? And now I want to give you four reasons that are related to the biblical description of love, which really isn't given to us here in this chapter. But as we think about love from a biblical point of view, we think first of this, that God is love. Love is indispensable because God is love. Without love, we are without God. 1 John 4, verse 8, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. This is the essence of the being of God. One of the attributes of God is that God is His attributes, that's the attribute of the simplicity of God. And when we say God is a simple being, we mean that God is his attributes and that he's not divided. That all his attributes are one in him, that there's a perfect harmony in God. And the main foundation for that in Scripture, saying that God is his attributes, is this text in 1 John 4 verse 8. God is love. Not just God is loving, 
Not just God loves sometimes, but this is essential to the being of who God is. And so to know God is to know the love of God. It is to experience the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who is God, Romans 5, verse 5. And it's to express that experience in our relationships to others. To know God is to love, because we are loved. We may do many splendid things in the name of God. Jesus talks about that, doesn't he? They'll come to me in that day and they'll say, Lord, Lord, we've done this and we've done that in your name. And he'll say, I don't know you. You don't know me. And here's the missing component. Love. To be filled with the Spirit of God, to be filled with the fullness of God, is to be filled with love. Otherwise, we're nothing. Second, and we see here another biblical, important description of what love is. Second, love is indispensable, indispensable It takes priority because love is the bond of perfectness. That's the way it's described for us in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 14. And we should think here especially of the life of God triune, a perfect bond, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, but one in the Godhead, in perfect harmony. Love is the bond of perfectness. And that's the way for us to think of our life with God as well. He binds us to himself in love. He fills us with his love. And we love him in return. There's a mutuality in the relationship that we have with God. This bond that reciprocates. And loving him, we love others. And so this is the bond between believers. In Colossians 3, verse 14, when it describes love as the bond of perfectness, says that love is something that we should put on. It's like a garment that we need to put on as we live with each other. And the point here is that without love, there's no true fellowship. There's no true bond with God or with others. And that's the repeated emphasis again in 1 John, which is all about love. 1 John 3, verse 17. Whoso hath this world's goods, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Or the love of God does not dwell in him. So love is the bond of perfectness. Third, thinking of love from a biblical point of view, we think of the summary of the law. We read that earlier in the worship service, and it's in one word, isn't it? It's to love. What's the great commandment? The great commandment, the primary, the most important commandment to love. That's how Jesus sums the law. This is the summary of our obedience. Love God and love your neighbor. And this is the basic debt that we owe to God and that we owe to one another. Owe no man anything but to love 
one another. And so love is the expression of genuine Christianity. Without love, there is no genuine Christianity, only hypocrisy. This is biblical Christianity, to love. And then fourth, when we think of love, and we've mentioned this already, love is the first evidence and fruit of the Spirit's work. And so it's the outstanding mark of the Christian. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And everything else that Galatians 5, 22 and 23 say as the fruit of the Spirit really flows out of that one thing, love. Out of love comes patience and kindness and temperance and so on. The fruit of the Spirit is love. We often think that when someone's regenerated, well, that's going to evidence itself first in things like this, that they will understand theology. If they really believe, they would understand theology. The Bible says, here's the evidence. Love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And an absence of love, then, is an absence of the Spirit's work. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Romans 8, verse 9. And so how does the Spirit's work show? In a love that suffers long, is kind, envies not, vaunts not itself, is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, and so on. And now remember again, those words, those descriptions of love come to us as a rebuke. Because Corinth wasn't long-suffering, was envious, was full of pride, and so on. The Spirit's work will be evident in the display of true agape charity love. This is important for us tonight as we leave the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of the love of God and the love of Jesus Christ towards us. The death of Jesus Christ, which is set before us in the sacrament, is not simply a transaction to pay for sin. It's not merely the obedience of Jesus Christ to the Father's will for Him that He lay down His life. It's not just the purpose of God in election. It's not just the most, a description of the most intense suffering that ever was, that Christ suffered in body and soul, even the agonies and the torments of hell. No, the death of Jesus Christ is the love of the Savior for us. Without love, all that Jesus did on Calvary has no meaning at all. God so loved that He gave His only begotten Son. God commended His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I lay down my life 
Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. In Calvary, we have the highest expression of the love of God for us and the love of the Savior, sacrificial love on display. John chapter 13, the first verses tell us this right before Jesus takes up the bowl of water and washes his disciples' feet and then tells them, you should do what I've done to you. It says this, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. That is, that Jesus, when he came to the Passover supper with his disciples, knew that this was going to Calvary. And he gave them in the foot washing a symbol of what he would do at Calvary. And it wasn't simply serving in physical ways like foot washing. But it was the forgiveness of our sins through the great sacrifice of himself. And now, as we leave the sacrament, this is the pattern for us. We have experienced the love of God, the love of the Savior. And the application is you put the same priority on love. You individually and you as a church. Note the way that Paul makes this very personal and individual. He uses the first person personal pronoun. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, though I have the gift of prophecy, and so on. He wants the people in his audience who hear this, the Corinthians who read this, to think about themselves. I may have the gift of prophecy. I may have all knowledge and understand all mysteries. I may bestow all my goods to feed the poor. But if I don't have love, I am nothing. That should be our concern before the Word of God tonight. Not to go around and say about others, he doesn't have love, what he's doing is worthless. Now God's Word confronts you and me personally tonight. What duties am I performing in my life without love? What am I doing simply because I have to do it, but there's no love for God or no love for the ones that I am called to serve? What relationships am I living in? Going through the motions without love. What religious activities of worship am I involved in? Again, going through the activities and the motions without love. I might even suffer for Jesus Christ. I might even have to give my body to be burned. And I can do that in an entirely selfish way, without love for God and without love for others. I may understand all knowledge and mysteries and give my body to be burned and give away all my goods to feed the poor and have no love, and it amounts to nothing. 
the application is not only individual, but it's corporate. We can have in the church an understanding of all knowledge and all mysteries. No, we can't have an understanding of all knowledge and all mysteries. We can think that we do, or we can think that we approximate that, or that we're superior in that. We can have the best doctrinal statements. We can have sound biblical preaching. We can have worship in which we follow the regulative principle and believe that we're worshiping in obedience to the commandment of God. We can be busily engaged in evangelism. We can be busy in in personal witnessing. But there's a visitor or someone that runs across your path in your day-to-day life as a Christian. And what he experiences is the opposite to love. He's dealt with unpatiently, unkindly. He finds God's people are not long-suffering with his ignorance. Instead, he runs across people who are easily provoked, who rejoice in iniquity, who vaunt themselves. And he says, are they even Christians? Do they love God? Do they know how to love God? Do they love one another? Do they know how to love one another? Do they love the stranger? Without love, we are nothing. We profit nothing. We could say, we've failed. And that's the confronting and the convicting word tonight. And the closing exhortation is this from 1 Corinthians 16, 14, after the apostle gives this section in Corinthians. Let all your things be done with charity. Let that be the motivation. Let that be the guiding principle. Let all things be done in love. As we leave the sacrament tonight, we can be thankful for God's unfailing love towards us. We can be thankful that we know and experience the love of God towards us in Jesus Christ. We can appreciate the work of the Holy Spirit shedding abroad that love in our hearts. We can be thankful for the gospel that declares and proclaims the love of God for us. We can be thankful for the fruit of the Spirit, love, that we experience from others, but we must be resolved that the love with which we have been loved and which we experience, we also express and give priority to this. May God grant that and bless us by his word tonight. Amen. Father, we're thankful for the word of God here We're thankful for the love of the Savior. We're grateful that we can know Thee as a loving God. We're thankful for the work of the Spirit in our hearts to give us the grace to be loving towards one another. And we pray, Lord, that we, with the Word here, may put a priority on this in our Christian living, especially in response to the sacrament and the love that we have come to know in Jesus Christ. 
In his name we pray. Amen.